Please take out your Bible this morning and I encourage you to keep it open this morning and follow along as we give attention this morning to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Our focus this morning will be verses 1 through 3, but I want to go ahead and read the entirety of the chapter to prepare our hearts and minds for what we're going to be looking at together over the course of the next couple of weeks together. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his, can the key, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such this second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where their beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, let's pray once again. Our Father in heaven, we do once again come to you. This is your word, inspired by you to communicate to us the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this morning you would give us ears to hear, spiritual eyes to see, and to behold Christ on display. Give us eyes to see your glory and your greatness. That, Father, we might live upon the truths, the great truths of your might, of your sovereignty, of the work of Jesus Christ. That we might live upon these truths this day and every day, even as we live in this period of time between the ascension of Christ and his return. Father, we're all too much aware that this time in between the advents of Christ, it's overwhelming, it's dangerous, it's difficult. There's trials, there's tribulation. But the message of Revelation is Christ is enough. So Father, help us this day to flee to our King. Give us boldness, give us courage, give us grace that as we leave here today, our hope would be not in our understanding of the end times, but our hope would be in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Recently I was watching a report about people who were unable to see certain colors. They physically had limitations in their eyes, and certain colors did not appear to them in all the brilliance and vibrance that God created them to, to be. And 
they were fitted with certain glasses that helped them to see what they couldn't see themselves. These special glasses allowed them to see the, the full array and the full spectrum of color that without the glasses, they couldn't see. And that's exactly what I think our passage does for us this morning. Here in Revelation chapter 20, it says as if we've been living in a world of dull grays and neutral colors. And this passage is designed to show us the full away, array, the, <coughs> excuse me, the glorious spectrum of full color to see the world as it really is. To see it not as we see it with our physical eyes, but having applied the glasses of Revelation chapter 20 to see it as it really is. And so Revelation 20 combined with Revelation chapter 19, where we've been the last couple of weeks, reminds us that even while the nations rage against Christ, against our king, they're influenced by the dragon, right? The beast and the prophet. We've seen that ever since chapter 12. The explanation why, under the surface, why is a world in rebellion to Christ? It's the influence of the dragon, the beast, and the prophet, those allies of, of Satan. While the nations may gather together in their opposition to Christ, Christ cannot be defeated. In fact, where did we leave off last week in chapter 19? In fact, he's already won. And the question is, do we believe that? It's easy on a Sunday morning to profess our, our belief in the, the power of the cross. And oh, hallelujah, what a savior. He's done it all. It is finished. It is his cry. He's done it all. But it's something altogether different to bring those truths to bear upon our daily lives as we walk out this door back into a world that's in rebellion to Christ. Do we believe that our king has already won the battle? That Christ is the faithful and true. That Christ is the word of God. That Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. Who possesses a name that he is so glorious, so incomprehensible, no one can know it but him. The battle belongs to Christ. Who has already triumphed at the cross of Jesus Christ. My earnest prayer for us this morning is that God would help us put on the glasses of Revelation chapter 20. Put on these spectacles to help us to see the God-revealing, Christ-exalting, Spirit-infused truth of who Christ is and what He's done that we may live upon them. But first things first, even the best glasses put upon us will be of no use if we're looking at the wrong thing, right? Right glasses, now we must fix our eyes and make sure we're looking at the right thing. So it's important for us as we come to Revelation chapter 20. It's no secret. This is probably the most controversial chapter in all of the book of Revelation, and that's saying something. My prayer to God is that this is not about me trying to uh, bring an academic message upon um, how do we understand this? My prayer is that God would help us to do what the message of the book of Revelation has been. Look to Jesus and to see how this text reveals him. Just as that's been the, the purpose of the context of the whole of the book. With Revelation chapter 20 verse 1, we're looking at the first three verses this morning. We have now made our way into the seventh and final of John's visions that make up the book of Revelation. We've been talking about this along the way, that the book of Revelation is unique as apocalyptic literature, whereas previously God spoke through the Holy Spirit to his writers, and, and they wrote the word. This is complete. It's a vision that's been conveyed to John that he's recording. these, And there's been a series of visions all throughout, seven in all. And each vision is a retelling of the first vision. It's cyclical. Each one of these visions is, okay, we're going around another time, but we're going to draw out some things that we didn't talk about the first go around. The second go around, I'm seeing some things John is saying, 
I'm seeing some things I didn't see. I'm, uh, it's, again, like the football game. You have many cameras on the same game. Each camera emphasizing and drawing out something unique. And as we come to the seventh, there's nothing unique here in the sense that we're looking at the same thing, but he's bringing out a new truth. What were the seven visions? The first one was uh, chapter, one, verse, chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 3, verse 22, the church on earth, right? The seven churches. And then the second vision was God's throne and the seven seals. That's Revelation 4, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 1. Again, no different. It's just uh, coming around and now applying those seven churches, what's going on in those churches, the circumstances of it, now bringing the glory of Christ to bear upon it. The third vision, the seven trumpets, Revelation 8, 2 through chapter 11, verse 19. The fourth vision, there's an interlude, and then warfare and salvation, chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 14, verse 20. This is where John kind of goes behind the scenes to explain why these sealed judgments, why, are, why is all this going on? He kind of goes back to reveal to us the dragon and the, <coughs> excuse me, his, his allies. The fifth vision is the seven bowls of judgment, Revelation 15, 1 through chapter 16, verse 21. Vision 6, we just finished it last Lord's Day, the victory of Christ in Revelation 17, verse 1 through chapter 19. And then vision 7 begins this morning, the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. We are now presently in that seventh vision. And it's simply a retelling of everything that's come before it. And here's the idea. Think back with me to Revelation 17 and 18. What did we see there? It was the destruction of the great prostitute, Babylon. The great prostitute who was an instrument of Satan to woo people away from the beauty and majesty of Christ, to, to woo them away to another lover. In chapter 17 and 18, we see the destruction of that great prostitute, Babylon the Great. In Revelation 19, we see the other two allies of Satan that we're introduced to in chapters 12 and 13. Remember the beasts from the sea and from the land? The, 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 the beast and the false, what happens to them in Revelation chapter 19? Where did we end off last week? Christ comes on the white horse and they're ready for battle. Was it a battle? <laughs> Not at all. Christ comes and utterly destroys. So that's some of the key players, there's one key player still, still on the table there, the dragon. In Revelation 20, it's about the fate of the dragon. And spoiler alert, it will be the exact same thing as what we see in 17, 18, and 19. The destruction, destruction, destruction will be the fate of the dragon here, which will inevitably lead to the consummation of the work of Jesus Christ. That's where we've been. So chapter 20 is a retelling of chapter 17 and 18. And for that matter, 17, 18, 19, and 20 are a retelling of chapter 12. Chapter 12, I know it's been a while. What was going on there in chapter 12? That was where the dragon comes in. Remember the pregnant woman, the dragon mouth wide open, ready to devour the child that's born. Who's the child? Symbolically, it's Christ. That child is rescued. The dragon is angry. The dragon is going after the woman. The dragon doesn't succeed there. The dragon there in the latter parts of chapter 12 is bound and determined, I'm going to destroy all who align with this people. There in chapter 12, we read about how the dragon was hurled out of heaven to the earth in destruction. So what's happening here in chapter 20? If that happened in chapter 12, it's a retelling. It's not that he died there and then came back to life. It's a retelling with different emphases. And so it's important for us, again, as we have, as God gives us the right glasses to see in this passage, to make sure we're looking at the right thing. Chapter 20 is another one of those recapitulations or retelling of what happened in chapter 17 and 18, of what happened in the other visions. It's not chronological, chapter 19, and then chapter 20 happens. It's a retelling. But that's what John is doing. And that's what John's been doing. 
We're not here as we come to chapter 20 now changing up the strategy. This has been what John has been doing all along. It would be dangerous now for us to now start taking things chronologically, meaning that happened and now this must happen. And then once that happens, that, it would be dangerous for us to do that. Why? Because all throughout, this is what John's been doing, retelling. Think about Revelation 6 and 7. Where does Revelation 6 end? It's with final judgment. Do you remember the question? In light of final judgment, all of creation is kind of, they're, they're, they're crying for the mountains to fall down upon them so that they might not have to stand face to face with Jesus Christ in his wrath. And chapter 6 closes with the question, who can stand? That was final judgment. If we're taking this chronologically, well, then we would expect chapter 7 to be, we're, we're landing the plane, new heaven, new earth, in the book. But what does chapter 7 do? It answers the question, who can stand, by going right back into it. It's another set of visions that takes us right back into the situation to show who can stand in the judgment. Obviously, there he's not writing chronologically. Final judgment should have been the end of it. But in chapter 7, he goes right back around to it to answer the question, who can stand? In Revelation chapter 11, we read in verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants. All right, so there's the announcement of final judgment. And then the 24 elders spoke these words. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy, and heavy hail. All of those throughout the Bible are symbolic of God's wrath. The end of time, final judgment. So we would expect there at the end of chapter 11, the next line, after all those peals and rumblings, we would expect that next line to be, and now the new heavens and new earth. But that's not what happens. We read this in chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon in her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in the birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. Where does John go after, again, another demonstration of final judgment in chapter 11? He goes all the way back to the first century. Obviously, he's not writing chronologically. He's cycling back around, taking us all the way back to the first coming of Jesus. Only to take us to the end yet again. Because he's been recapitulating, going back and looking at it over and over again. You see, the purpose of John in writing, he told us in chapter 1, verse 1, it's not the revelation of the end times so that you can cling to a series of events so that you can, that may or may not, and if we're looking across the horizon of church history, which is now at about 2,000 years, which probably won't even happen in your lifetime and won't be of any benefit to you whatsoever, that's not what he says. It's the revelation, what? Not of the end times, not of events. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we come together this morning, John is writing to reveal to his church the glory of Jesus Christ upon his cross. And so what we have here in Revelation chapter 20 is another picture of what we saw in chapter 17, 18, and 19. It's kind of like you have three different newscasters coming to report on one event. And they all may interview different people. They may focus upon different aspects of the story, but ultimately, they're talking about the same event. And so, with that in mind, what do we see here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1? The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the almighty power of God. The almighty power of God. Verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. It's here we see the omnipotent power of almighty God on display. Now, if you're paying attention to the reading, it would be reasonable if someone wanted to raise their hand and say, listen, 
I appreciate the point, the almighty power of God, but I didn't see God mentioned in verse 1. Did you notice that? Go back and look at it. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. I don't see God there. That's exactly the point. Stay with me. All the way back in chapter 9, God Almighty sent an angelic being to unlock the abyss, to allow some of the demons to be freed from the torment. God sent an angel to do that. In chapter 12, God sent the archangel Michael to cast Satan out of heaven. Here in chapter 20, God sends another unnamed angelic being ultimately to seize and arrest Satan, to imprison him for a specific length of time. And what's the point there? God is the omnipotent, almighty creator. God is the almighty. God is the one with infinite power. God's power knows no limits. It knows no boundaries. There is nothing our God cannot do within the, within, according to his will. As for Satan, man, that scoundrel ever since, ever since the Garden of Eden we just read, he's cunning, he's powerful, he's mightier than us. But make no mistake about it, Satan is only a mere creature. He's a person like every one of us. And verse 1 reveals to us about God that Satan's power is so inferior to God's omnipotence that God need only send one of his angels to go and take care of Satan. Don't miss that. God need only send one of his servants to go and perfectly fulfill his purposes for Satan. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Because I think this is important for us as we're asking God to help us to put on the spectacles, the glasses, to see the full array of chapter 20, not for what we speculate it to be, but for what God reveals it to be. We need to use this as a teaching moment for just a few moments. I need this. You probably need this. We need to be reminded of something very, very fundamental. Whether we're approaching Revelation chapter 20, whether any passage in the Bible. The Bible is primarily a book about God, about God revealed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It is the story of God communicated in a long series of narratives and statements about him. God reveals himself in various genres, his historical narrative, epistles, psalms, wisdom literature, prophecy, but it's always about God. And we have to be careful when we approach God's word. And this is particularly true here in Revelation 20. We have to be careful that when we approach God's word, we're asking the right question. That we're coming and we're approaching it. God, if this book is about you, what does Revelation 20 teach me about you? For the better part of the last hundred years or so, Revelation 20 has been about something entirely different. About figuring out speculations about end time events and chronology of events that really aren't even in keeping with the context of the book. We must be careful. God, what does this text say about you? What do I learn of you in this passage? Let me ask you, if you read Revelation 20 prior to coming or if you've read it recently, are you seeking what God reveals about himself? Or are you seeking to know something about future time events? What has Revelation 20 been about to you? It's easy and it's almost natural for us to, to get lost in the wonder of the thousand years. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll teeter in that a little bit today, but a little bit more next week. It's almost natural for us when we see these things in a thousand years for us to begin to wonder, a thousand years, what's going on here? Let me, 
and yet miss the God who is timeless, to whom a thousand years is but a mere nanosecond. Which one is more glorious? A thousand years or the God who is not bound by time and a thousand years is a nanosecond? Even that was too long. Which are we, are we drawn to? Which are we mesmerized by? Which captivates our soul? Is it figuring out end time events? Or is it the God who's revealing himself to us in this? That he is the almighty. He is so more powerful than our enemy who's doing all this stuff that he doesn't even need to come and do it himself. He can send his own representative. Bend the knee, bow the heart to this God who is almighty and omnipotent in power. It's a great opportunity for us to think through in your own Bible reading when you come to the word of God. What is the question you come with? The right question, you've got to come with the right, God, what does this text teach me about you? About who you are? And part of God giving us the, the spectacles to see, I do not believe for one second God is interested in helping us to figure out what really is only in his mind. Future end time events, thousand years, what does it stand for, this, that, and the other? If you wanted us to know, He'd tell us. God is not the one who, I love my children, I want them to know me, but I'm going to toy with them. I'm going to let them speculate a little bit. Let me just, if he wanted, if it were necessary for us to know, beloved, make no mistake, he who gave his own son on the cross to die, do you think he's going to withhold anything that's necessary for you? If understanding the millennial reign of Christ is necessary, I promise you, you would have chapter and verse, and it's all filled out. What he does tell us in this passage is the almighty nature of our God. Be captivated, be mesmerized. And if that sounds dull or dreary to you, this is an appropriate moment right now. Don't wait till you go home right now. Pause and ask God, God, obviously I need those glasses put on because you are not big enough to me right now. I was hoping this message might be about the thousand years and, and him kind of, Reaffirming, no, it's about God. This morning, the Lord has brought us together to remember he is the almighty. His power is limitless. His power is endless. It does not weaken. It does not decay over time or with repeated use. The power of God never needs rest. It never needs repair. You never have to call a maintenance man to come in and put a fresh battery into it. God is the almighty. God asked Abraham a question. We must ask, is anything too hard for the Lord? The angel Gabriel said to the Virgin Mary, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, God is able to do abundantly far more than all we ask or think. That's what's on display here in verse 1. Don't get caught up with the angel. We're going to talk about what he's got in his hands here in just a moment. But I promise you, even that's about revealing more of the glory of God. First thing we need to see, the almighty power of God there in verse 1. Satan is nothing in comparison to him. The second thing I need, we need to see, the almighty power of God is always, has always been, is presently, and always will be in complete control over the dragon. Let me say that again. And oh God, give us ears to hear that we may live upon this. The almighty power of God has always been, is presently, and always will be in complete control of the dragon. What do we mean by control over the dragon? Well, if we're talking about a God who has limitless power, we're talking about the application of that power, the exercise. What do you do with unlimited power? It makes you sovereign. It, may, it gives you complete authority over all things. If you have unlimited power over the world you made, you have complete authority and power and control over it all. In the Bible, we call this the providence of God or the sovereignty of God. 
Theologian Wayne Grudem defines God's providence as this. God in omnipotent power is continually involved with all created things, right? He's continually involved with everything he's made in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties of which he created them. He cooperates with them in every action, directing their distinctives to keep them to act as they do. And then three, he directs them to fulfill his purpose. How in the world would God be able, he's got omnipotent power. He's the almighty. He has authority over all that he created. And Satan, beloved, let us not forget, is but a mere person. Satan is not God. Satan was like every one of us, created by God. For all that we've seen of this dragon going back, go, go back to Genesis chapter 3, the passage we just read of the serpent going into the Garden of Eden, all that we see Satan doing throughout the Old Testament, we'll talk about that in just a moment, all that we see Satan doing throughout the New Testament, the great dragon we see, for all that we see, Satan possesses no authority, no power whatsoever in comparison to God. Tremble, folks, tremble. This one who we fear, this one who, who we allow to, to, we live upon his presence, this one, no power, no authority whatsoever over God who created him and is omnipotent over him. And just like we talk about God's sovereignty in our lives, right? God knows every hair on our heads. God has ordained the days of our birth, the day of our death. We can't do anything to fix that. God is omnipotent and almighty over our lives. We're familiar with God's sovereignty over our lives. Guess what? In the exact same way, God is sovereign over Satan actively, sovereignly over every aspect of Satan's life. Go back to Wayne Grudem's definition. We can apply that to God's relationship, his involvement in Satan. The reason Satan is still alive, God maintains his life. The very moment God is done with him, guess he won't exist anymore. Or at least in the context of how we understand him. It is God who directs Satan's purposes. Maintaining that all the, the, the Bible's God's story. And all that God intended for Satan to do so that Christ would come and be victorious over him, he's maintaining. Think about, remember the book of Job? How Satan wanted to go and destroy Job. And what did he have to go ask? Who did, who did he have to go ask permission first? The God. And for God's purposes, God gave him certain permissions, but he gave him certain restrictions. And guess who was limited by those restrictions? Guess who? It wasn't even a possibility for him to go beyond what God allowed. You know, Satan. Because God is the Almighty who's always in complete control well, of all things. But here in Revelation chapter 20, we're being drawn to his complete control over the great dragon. Listen, the Bible, New Testament tells us Satan is the God of this world. That's true. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of Christ. That's true. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that <coughs> excuse me, all Christians once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, almost like zombies almost. I mean, we were dead and trespasses in, following Satan. That's true. He influenced power. The devil is an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. That imagery is true. Satan is an enemy that is too much for us. He is that great dragon of Revelation chapter 12 who makes war because he wasn't able to, to, to destroy Christ. Now what makes war on Christ's church? But never, all that is true about Satan, but never is Satan a renegade adversary who's living independent 
of God's almighty power. Satan's life, his existence, his purposes, his demise, always and forever are in the palm of God's infinite almighty hand. God give us spectacles to see the full array of the application of that to our lives. Help us to wonder, not at events, but at you who is in complete control over Satan. And what about this, in in verse 1, this key? This key that the angel who's coming to execute God's plan, he's got a key and and, and also he's got a great chain. What's the key? The key's been mentioned all throughout Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 18, it's the key of death in Hades. It's mentioned again in chapter 3, verse 7, the key of David. Same idea in chapter 3, verse 8, or chapter 9, verse 1, the key to the bottomless pit. The same key, identified again, cyclically. We're going around, just different things about it. And where did that key come from? It was awarded to Christ. It was won by Christ at the resurrection. His defeat over death, his defeat over Satan, his defeat over over the world in the resurrection when he came alive. He now has complete authority over death, over Satan, over the world. Christ has the key to death and Hades, to Satan, to the world. It's a way of saying he's in complete control of it. What about this great chain that the the angel brings? The angel comes as a representative with Christ's key and with this great chain. The Greek word here for great chain is a a, a handcuff that's attached to a wall, like a dungeon wall. And as with the key, it's not, not a literal key, it's a symbolic key. The angel's not coming with a literal metal device. The imagery here is that upon the authority of God's almighty power and the victory of Christ crucified and resurrected, he's coming to bind Satan, to keep him ultimately from doing what previous to the resurrection of Christ, what he had been doing. We'll get to that in just a moment. The point here, Satan's not God. Satan is jealous of God, but Satan cannot compete with God. Satan is a mere creature created by God who possesses no authority, no power whatsoever. God is the Almighty. God is the Almighty who in almighty power controls every aspect of Satan, his existence, his purposes, his demise. Depicted here in the keys and the chain that's coming. The next thing I want us to see, the almighty, almighty God has once and for all conquered and imprisoned the great dragon through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. We've already alluded to it, but now I want you to see it in the text. I don't want you to hear me and think, man, Jake's really pulling things out of thin air here. Look at the text, verse 2. And he, who's the he there, it's the angelic being, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nation's any longer until the thousand years were ended. Notice first, Satan here is designated by four titles. The dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. Why why would John do that? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask of the text. Why not just call him the devil and move on? Why these four titles? Well, two things. First, to remind the reader just how dangerous this creature is. Oh, as you see Almighty God coming, He's nothing compared to Him. But but keep in mind, from our perspective, my goodness, this dragon is Genesis 3, the ancient serpent who deceived Eve in, in the garden. He's the great slanderer of God's elect. He's the accuser, the one who brings charges against God's elect. So in one sense, John uses this 
fourfold titles, these fourfold designations to remind us. And this is to the glory of God. This one who is this horrific is nothing in comparison to Almighty God. But secondly, we need to draw our attention to the fact, keep in mind what we've already been talking about. These are the exact same four designations used by John for Satan in Revelation chapter 12. Now, what does that mean? It means he's alluding back. He's coming back around. Chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Now, for us, it may seem like, how do you remember that? I mean, that was Revelation chapter 12. That was literally months ago. Do you expect us to remember that? No, obviously not. But do keep in mind, in the first century, this was read in one sitting. And in one sitting, as the people of God were attentive to God's word, they would have heard that this is an allusion to what we heard previously in this message. And in fact, the reproduction of these four terms here in chapter 20 is supposed to signal to you and I the close connection to what happened in chapter 12. What happened there in chapter 12? That fourfold Satan was thrown down and destroyed. What's happening here? Same thing. Did he die, rise again, come back, and we're doing the whole thing over again? No, we're not reading this chronologically. Here, John is recording recapitulation. He's retelling it. But now drawing out more of the glory of God, more of the power and the omnipotence of God than before. The question everyone wants to argue over, or one of, when did this binding take place? When will this binding take place? And I fully understand I will be in the minority in this, but I would urge you simply to handle the word of God and, and spend some time looking at some of these texts. I'm of the contention the binding of Satan took place in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in his public ministry, and most significantly in his death and resurrection. So what would that mean for us? He's bound now. Right now, Satan is bound. Now let me try to defend that biblically. Consider some of these accounts. Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has just done, he's healed a, he's done a miracle, healed a demon-possessed man. The Pharisees come along, and what do they charge Jesus with? They charge claiming that Jesus has authority over the demons because, why? He's one of them. He's in league with the devil. That was the charge brought against him. To which Jesus responds this way, and I quote, chapter 12, verse 28. How can someone enter a strong man's house? Who's the strong man there? Satan. Satan had this demon-possessed man. He had control over this man. How can someone enter into Satan's house, a strong man's house, and plunder his goods, meaning what? Take this man from him. This man who was under devil, uh, uh, he was demon-possessed, devil-possessed. How can you plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may indeed plunder his house. Jesus declares even there in his public ministry that the binding work of Satan was already underway. We could look at the wilderness temptation of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we, I think it's safe to say Satan had control over the nations. Not the people of God, but the nations. One could say that Jesus bound the devil when when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus didn't fall prey. For the first time among the nations, one was binding the work of Satan. His temptation to turn people away from God, it didn't work. He was losing his influence when Jesus overcame those temptations. Here's another, John chapter 12. Some of the Gentiles approach Jesus in chapter 12. Jesus meets them and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man, Jesus says, to be glorified. What's he talking about there? He's talking about his 
crucifixion and death. That's how he's going to glorify himself, glorify the Father through the crucifixion and death. <coughs> Jesus then declared, now is the judgment of this world. Now, in his public ministry, in his crucifixion, now will the ruler of this world, who is who? Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast off. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Why is that a passage? Because the word that Jesus used there, the ruler of this world in my crucifixion will be cast off. It's the exact same word John uses here to declare the binding of Satan. Luke chapter 10. John sends out 72 disciples to go and to preach the gospel. They went in pairs of two. These two man groups came back overjoyed because they saw fruit in their ministry. Well, they were overjoyed because they saw hearts being converted by the Spirit of God. And in response to their joy, Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What's the context there? As the gospel was going forth, I was watching. I was seeing some, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Jesus is saying, previous to this, Satan held the world in bondage, keeping them blind to the glory of the gospel. But in God's victory and conquering over the souls through the presentation of the gospel, I sat back and I was watching the binding of Satan. I was watching him fall like lightning from heaven. And then for me personally, the text that confirms it in addition to all these things is Colossians 2. Paul writes, Jesus' death on the cross, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So the question, when does this binding take place? Christ, God is writing to the seven churches. They're in the midst of great turmoil, right? All kinds of tribulation, all kinds of struggle. Satan, his influence. When does this take place? Answer, he was bound at the cross. Ultimately bound at the cross. Now, here's the inevitable objection. Jake, Jake, listen, biblically, I think I can see those arguments, but realistically, look at the world around us. Are you really going to suggest to me today that Satan right now is bound by God? How do you explain all the evil in the world? How do you explain the temptation that I face every single day? You're going to sit here and have the audacity to say Satan has been bound, to which I would reply, it's a legitimate question, one that I ask myself. Can I answer? Do I realize, do we realize, most of the evil we do and we see in the world, the devil has nothing to do with it. Let me say that again. Most of the evil we do and we see, the devil has nothing to do with it. It's the world and the flesh. Now, let me defend that. Satan is a created being. He's a literal person. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not. If he were, he would be God. Satan is a created being. He's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. And with all due respect, it's true for me, I'm going to say it for you. You and I are just not that important for that one person who can be in one place at a time, who is limited by being, we are just not as important for him to deal with us personally. Here's the real issue. The problem is not the devil, although that's how we, the devil made me do it. The real issue is our flesh. Our flesh does a number on us day after day after day. So much so, I'm convinced Satan doesn't even need to bother with us. Our flesh is doing it for us. Our flesh is doing what he would love to do himself. 
no need. Our flesh, we can't even overcome our own flesh, our sinful desires, our own wants. Do we think that because we are so strong and because we have overcome our flesh so powerfully, Satan has to come down and do what the world and flesh can't do? Of course not. Revelation 20 is about the binding of Satan. It doesn't say anything about the flesh being gone. It doesn't say anything about the world being gone. All that's coming. But this is about God's power over Satan. We're going to deal with our flesh until the Lord comes back. So, therefore, come back quickly, Lord Jesus, right? The work of Satan has been bound by the death and resurrection of Christ. Why? As we close, why? Verse 3, And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it at the cross, so that, why? He might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. We'll talk a little bit more about that thousand years. I'll just leave it at this this morning. Every other number in the book of Revelation up to this point has been symbolic. Everyone. Why now do we insist upon this has to be literal? That's a dangerous thing to do. The symbolism we've actually seen, not in this context, but elsewhere. The number thousand myriads being used to symbolize, not just in Revelation, but because we see it in the Old Testament, it's symbolic of just a long, long time. And the idea here, the binding of Satan for a long, long time. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations. A little background. In the Old Testament times, all the nations of the world, except Israel, were, so to speak, under Satan's rule. Every nation. At that time, the people of Israel were unique among all the nations of the world. They had received from God special revelation by grace. They would be, he would be their God. They would be his people. And God revealed himself to them through types and shadows and narrative and all those things we've come to know. But during this exact same time, the other nations of the world did not know this truth. They were in rebellion to God. They were the enemies of God, except for certain occasional people, cities, God's grace upon certain Gentiles. But by and large, the nations of the world were in blindness and darkness with regard to God. What Satan was doing across the globe was what he did in Genesis 3, deceiving the world with regard to God, just as he had done to Adam and Eve in the garden. So Satan's work in the Old Testament was to deceive and all the nations of the world practiced idolatry. Not the one true God. They practiced idolatry. They lived unrestrained lives. They had no concern for the law of God that was given to Israel. They didn't live by that law. That was foolishness to them. And they denied the God of the Bible's existence. And you ever notice how in the Old Testament, Israel's witness in the world was incredibly minimal. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was the world who had the most influence on Israel. Wasn't it Israel who was constantly drifting away from the Lord and the Lord having to come? Why was Israel's influence on the world so minimal? Why was the world not being won to Christ in the Old Testament? Answer, because Satan was unbound. Satan was ruling over the world, deceiving, turning hearts away from the God of the Bible. But now, through some of the texts we just read, through the ministry of Jesus, he was beginning to take away some of Satan's power, some of his influence, until ultimately Colossians 2, at the cross, Satan was disarmed and bound. And so now, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, now what happened? What did Jesus say to his disciples after the resurrection? And I commend to you, he didn't say it prior to the resurrection. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, where Christ gained victory over Satan, it's then he says to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why now are they unleashed? Because now, through the death and resurrection of Christ, 
Satan is bound. Now he's no longer able to deceive as he previously had done. Now, and he goes on to tell them, and behold, I'm with you all the way. I'm with you to the end of the age. As you go out, some of us, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry for that. This past Wednesday night, some of us who meet together regularly, we were talking about biblical evangelism, right? We were talking about biblically as ambassadors of Christ. What does evangelism look like? And we talked about there. We live in a day today where we depend highly upon literature. We depend highly upon just uh, an outline of different things to be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the gospels, the power of evangelism is Christ. It's Christ. He is the Almighty. He is the one who's in complete control over Satan and everyone else. And He's the one who's conquered through the death and resurrection. Beloved, evangelism that we've been called to Faithful evangelism. It must be done in the presence and power of Christ. When go and make disciples, yes, by all means. But the lo, I'm with you till the end is not meant as a comfort, meaning you're going to be uncomfortable. Don't worry, I'm there with you. The most important part of the go and make disciples is I am with you because I am the face of Almighty God. I am the Almighty. I am the one who's in complete control, not only of, of Satan, but of every heart. I am the one who conquers Satan and every rebel heart through the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. The call to go and take the gospel is a call to you keep your gaze upon Jesus. Be so overflowing with Jesus, seeking Him, His might, His power, His influence, His rule over your life that it naturally occurs in your life as well. We talked about Wednesday night. What is the gospel? Fundamentally, if we were to narrow it, what must a person at core, base, be and do in order to be considered a Christian? And there's a lot of confusion about that in our world today. Some people will answer that. Well, to be a Christian, at the core, you need to repent of your sins and profess faith in Jesus Christ. To which I, I would sort of say amen, but, then go, but what do you mean by that? The core of Christianity, the base thing you must be and do to be a Christian is to desire Christ, love Christ, pant after Christ, wonder after Christ, worship Christ. He must be all to you. And we see that all throughout the Bible. And where that kind of affection for Jesus isn't there, you might have repented. You might have professed your sins. You might have even kind of gone through that literature, read that book, kind of prayed that prayer mechanically and not experienced a heart where Jesus says, I've bound the deceiver. What was the work of the deceiver? He hates Christ. To turn hearts away from I've bound him. And now through the death and resurrection, I the Almighty, I the Almighty, have provided everything that's necessary for hearts to be fascinated by, enchanted by, overcome by, captivated by Christ. Why is it many professing Christians don't love Jesus? Might it be they've never really experienced the new birth? John 3, Nicodemus asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must be born again. So I go back into my mother's womb, and so Jesus rephrases it. No, you must be born of water and the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. Water, of course, symbolic of cleansing, the cleansing of the cross, the cleansing of our sin, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the Almighty God, who is sovereign and conquers Satan, also conquers rebel hearts through His Spirit. Revelation chapter 20. It's not about figuring out the end times. It's about the power of God to conquer not just Satan, but every rebel heart through the beauty and majesty of Christ. 
I fear we're asking the wrong questions. What is this text about? It's about God. It's about the power of the cross. We just sing it. It's about Jesus. What a Savior. Not only through his death are my sins forgiven, he bound Satan. And now Satan doesn't have the power to deceive. I've still got my flesh. I've still got the world. And that's enough. But now our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the power of God to do what only he can do. This morning, let me ask you as we close. Is there that indication in your soul at base root the almighty power of God who conquers rebel hearts by omnipotent power through the cross of Jesus Christ and turns that heart to Jesus Christ, no more being deceived, turns it to Jesus to desire him, to pant for him, to cry. Is there that indication that that's true in your life? That you love Jesus like that? Please don't toy with the gospel. Don't toy with the power of God. We've seen in 17, 18, and 19 what God does to his enemies. And as we continue through the book of Revelation, he will do that to all who don't bend the knee to Jesus. Satan has been bound. Look to Jesus. And if you're hearing me right now and you're thinking, I don't get it. I'm not following you. I'll take responsibility. I'm probably not being as clear as I could be. I'm trying. But secondly, also ask God, maybe those spectacles need to come on my eyes so that I can see what right now I'm not seeing because there's too much at stake. Would you do that? I must do that. That's what Revelation 20 is about. Seeing the glory of God the wonder of Christ's power. And the road has been cleared now. Satan is bound. You can have Christ. Do you want him?